SportsLit is co-founded and co-hosted by Neil Acharya and Nate Sager. Engineer and technical producer, Michael Ella. Executive producer, Neil Acharya. Welcome to SportsLit. I'm Neil Acharya. And I am Nathan Sager. Today, we speak with 1996 Olympic 100-meter gold medalist, Donovan Bailey, about his autobiography, Undisputed, A Champion's Life. It's published by Random House Canada, and it's released on October 31st. To understand Donovan Bailey's impact on the Canadian sports landscape, one must go beyond the titles, the things everyone knows, the fact that he was crowned the fastest man on earth with his 100-meter world record at the 1996 Atlanta Olympics, the world championship that preceded it. You have to understand the context. What was going on with Canadian athletics in that general time period? What was going on in Canadian sport in that general time period? And what was our cultural barometer as a nation? And how... How did all of this make Donovan Bailey all that much more explosive? Nate, let's start with Ben Johnson. Even when we hear that narrative now about the steroid scandal in 1988, uh, it, it was it's far more balanced now than what we were hearing in September 1988, and that's putting it lightly. But one thing that still kind of lingers is the word shame, and I don't think, and I think we both don't really think that's appropriate to how we felt then or how we felt or feel about it now. Yeah, it was a gut punch when Johnson was stripped of the gold medal at the 88 Seoul Olympics. And for you, it for people of our vintage, it's really seared into memory because we were, you know, impressionable kids coming into, you know, our wider consciousness. But at the time, it wasn't so much shame. It was just a feeling of, you know, someone's being singled out here. And, you know, lo and behold, it's well documented that it was the dirtiest race in history. And people who were there say it was also the greatest spectacle they ever saw. So, you know, yay, dirtiness, uh, maybe. It, but it, it just sort of revealed the reality that premier Olympians in that era really lived on this razor's edge of, if you don't take it, you won't make it. And, lo and 15 years later, I think a whistleblower revealed that Johnson's American arch rival, Carl Lewis, who swore up and down that he was clean and got bumped from silver in the 100 to gold. Yeah, he had positive tests that were hushed up. And that just confirmed what everyone around me in my little, you know, corner of the world uh, in 1988 was saying, often with a lot of, uh, you know, often punctuated with a lot of profanity. Uh, that's that's maybe enough about that, Neil. Well, the 100 meters is the most popular race in the grandest stage of international sport, and that's the Olympics. So it's the first thing people around the world would think of when Canada was complete competing on the global stage in summer sport they would think of that scandal mm -hmm. yeah yeah and you wish you could tell the story of Donovan Bailey because it's a, you know his story is we you know we read the book it's compelling enough without even having to mention Ben Johnson it was just a story that lingered and lingered through I guess about two Olympic cycles now I mean it's you know when he came on the scene though we saw here's a guy who's just a man possessed about Maxie and his talent and he you know and realizing, you know, I've got this gift 
and I'm, you know, going to use it. Uh, to be a world-class sprinter, as he writes in the book, you have to generate a torque that moves through your muscles 10 to 20 times more than your body weight. It just hurts to run that fast. And when it comes to the Olympics, you get one shot at it every four years, no do-overs. You don't even get the, you know, the benefit of a false start anymore. He had those bona fides, but there was, but it sort of got crowded out by just the collective, you know, once bitten, twice shy weariness and it almost, you know, sort of metatastasized into a cognitive distance. Oh, please, please, please don't be another Ben Johnson. Please, please, please dominate like Ben Johnson did. <laughs> yeah, so throughout his come up, he's aware of this, uh, you know, this this lingering cloud. And, 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 he's, and he's being scrutinized heavily, uh, it's covered uh, in the book. By his own governing bodies uh, through constant testing, that's Athletics Canada and the Canadian Olympic Committee, and he's he's you know we talked you talked about that drive and that and, and that singular focus, but he's he's also at the same time just he's so focused on not having his drink getting spiked by watching his water bottles at practice. You know when he should be focused entirely on his mechanics. He's looking over in the corner for to make sure no one's messing with his water bottle, and he, when he's at the club. He, he has to take his drink with him everywhere. Um, and so Canada goes through this four-year cycle after Seoul, and they go into Barcelona 92. And after Barcelona 92, Donovan Bailey emerges as this number one track athlete. He's rocketing for gold. He's confident, and he's an unabashed alpha. And he's really like no athlete we've seen in this country. And, and back to that cultural barometer, and I speak from my own experience here, you know, young Canadians at that time, and, you know, the, the ones I knew, we were gravitating to black culture. I mean, the 80s, there's politically conscious hip-hop. You know, towards the end of the 80s and into the 90s, Maestro Fresh West comes up in Canada, but he's not really breaking in the U.S. In his sport, you're watching the Fab Five emerge, and you're watching uh, their style and flair, their black shoes, black socks, baggy shorts. And, you know, throughout the 80s and into the 90s, we're loving the Blue Jays, uh, but these, you know, you know, guys like Jesse Barfield and and um, George Bell. Uh, then you move into Devon White, Joe Carter. But these guys are American. Uh, Donovan Bailey is one of us. He's Canadian. He's Caribbean. And guess what else? He's putting Americans in their place. He's saying things a lot of us are were thinking for for quite some time. He's he's saying it out loud. Yeah, and yet also have to remember like where where you know the timing of the tide was right for this to just be you know this huge uh, thing that got outside of its normal reach. Um, when Bailey's time to shine came out, it wasn't like the Olympics were you know taking place six hours ahead of us in Europe or you know you know whatever the time difference is between here and Tokyo. Uh, it was in the Eastern time zone in a you know Atlanta. Uh, which had won the bid over Toronto to, to host. And, you know, Bailey's coming in as the, you know, the Canadian, you know, the Americans, you know, the you know, Americans expect to win, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and this was a case where he had, you know, it wasn't a gold medal that was so much won as taken it from a, by a guy who, you know, was under unrelenting pressure to do so with, you know, the, scrut the scrutiny about, you know, what had happened, oh, stemming out of what had happened in 88, that had nothing to do with him, him and, and, uh, and, you know, I, then, you know, an ironic coda to that was, uh, for me came a couple of years after the Olympics. I want to say it was sometime between 
Atlanta 96 and the Sydney 2000 games. There was this, uh, you know, long form piece in Sports Illustrated that looked at the, you know, the science, science people who do, you know, doping control for the Olympics and the International Athletics, uh, Amateur Athletics Federation, the IAAF. And apparently in, in the trade, you know, Atlanta 96 was actually called the HGH games due to this strong visual evidence, you know, that athletes were taking human growth hormone, which was not directly detestable through de- detectable through uh, dope, doping the way uh, anabolic steroids are. And so there, that was the irony that there's all the suspicion on Donovan Bailey, but neither he nor the other two medalists in that men's 100 in 1996, Frankie Fredericks from Namibia or Addo Bolden from Trinidad and Tobago, ever had a positive test or suspension. You know who did, though? <laughs> the fourth-place American, Dennis Mitchell. Uh, well, he got a ban from competition a couple of years after Atlantic, after his routine drug test turned up high levels of testosterone, i.e., the male growth hormone enhanced by HGH and Mitchell, you know, hit, you know, I think, think, you know, there's no, ex- there's never been, no one's ever had a good excuse for, for a positive uh, doping test, you know, other than Ross Rebliotti, of course. And but got, if there was one. Yeah. If there was one, this was Dennis Mitchell's. I, you know, I said he had five bottles of beer and sex with his wife at least four times. It was her birthday. The lady deserved a treat. <laughs> Uh, let that digression just, uh, you know, digest. The lady deserved a treat. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah. So in the book, uh, Donovan Bailey really lets us in on everything he had going on in his life at that time around, you know, I guess maybe a year on either side of Atlanta. Uh, it, you know, as a sort of a sports, sports nerd in me loves learning how he and Dan Paff, his coach, they really just work to reduce the chance of an injury or just a collapse, uh, you know, it's important to know just everything that goes into the buildup to a gold winning, you know, 100 meter or I guess a 200 meter or 400 meter. It's really got to be as perfectly coordinated as a space shuttle launch. Uh, and another thing that I took out of it was the way uh, Bailey describes how Path, quote, didn't care about the noise and he taught me to think with that mindset. Yeah, a great part, a great part of the narrative, Nate, is when is his description of, of of his coach Dan Pfaff. and and it's almost out of a movie, isn't it? I mean, Dan is not your conventional uh, coach. He's chewing tobacco. He communicates in his own way, but he's brilliant, right? He's he's a, a savant, or I don't know what you want to call him, but that's he's really, as you said, he, it's it's great to learn about their relationship and 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 the description of of Dan himself. So. Donovan tells his story with intent, especially his origin story growing up in Jamaica on a farm um, and coming to Canada. He's a man who knows the audience that will read this book internationally and 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 domestically. He knows that there there are people with notions of 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 different things, and he's very clear. Uh, he wants the reader to know where he comes from and how he grew up. Uh, and there's no gray area. There never really is with with Donovan Bailey. Um, we also get to learn about why he had such an unconventional entrance into track, um, also known as athletics, track and field, by the way, um, and how he left racing. And, and to me, it was that was always kind of a mystery. He seemed to just rock the world in 96, and then I don't, I didn't really know where he went after. Now, he did compete in Sydney 2000. He had pneumonia there and didn't make the final of 100 meters, but it seemed like a sudden exit. So... In this book, we find out why why that was, and and, and kind of 
the story after 96 as well. And of course, the Michael Johnson race, I got to mention that too, um, uh, at, at Skydome, for those that don't remember. So after that time period, what happened to him? Yeah, indeed. I, I still get mad over the whole uh, thing. Uh, uh, for people who need a, just a brief reminder, Bailey won the 100, and then Michael Johnson, the American, won the 200 and the 400, and Bob Costas was like, you know, well, if you take his 200 time and you divide it by two, it's faster than Bailey's world record time in the 100. And it's just like, well, duh, you know. <laughs> You know, he's speeding up and there's a curve in the track. And of course, they set up an exhibition race the following year and Bailey dusted him, okay. <laughs> as, as you alluded to. Now, in terms of tie-ins with our back catalog, you know, I guess uh, with between Donovan Bailey and this book, Undisputed, uh, last year we had soccer star Dwayne Rosario. He sort of explored, the, you know, the Caribbean influence in you know southern ontario culture with us uh 2021 canadian hurdles great perdita felicien came on to discuss her book my mother's daughter uh we should mention of course you know as we're less than a year out from the paris 2024 olympics uh canada does have a pretty good history in sprinting every you know the beauty of uh track and field i think more than anything else in the olympics is you know any nation in the world can have someone with that 99.99 percentile ability to you know to, to just have that burst or also have the you know stamina for the longer races but in men's sprinting you know between the two world wars there was you know percy williams who did the 100 200 uh gold medal double in 1928 there was also ray lewis who has a park name after him in Ham hamilton for his uh olympic victories and you always have to explain to someone no it's not named after a former middle linebacker for the baltimore ravens it's another ray lewis and in the mid 20th century, in the 60s, there was Harry Jerome, who actually probably ran the first, world's first sub 10 second 100 meters uh, at the 1960 Canadian Olympic trials in Saskatoon. And I confirmed this with someone who was actually there. Uh, several, you know, they didn't have electronic timing yet back then. They, were, they, they had stopwatches. Some, some of the coaches had uh, Harry Jerome running a 9.9 second 100. Some had 10.0, and they were just like, mm, maybe, maybe we'll, we'll go on the side of caution and, and say he ran a, a 10 flat. And then, of course, toward the end of the 20th century, you know, we had a you know slew of sprinters. Kind of there was Ben Johnson, and then in the 90s there was Donovan Bailey, there was Bernie Surin, who I think was uh, a world silver medalist, and of course now presently, you know, heading into Paris, Andre DeGrasse and Aaron Brown are our, our best bets on the blocks, and we've had a pretty good relay team too, Neil. Yeah, Paris 2024, not that far away, uh, basically half a year. So uh, it'll come quickly. Um, remember, uh, you can buy this book, the book we're going to cover today with Don Bailey, Undisputed. Um, and you, you can buy this book and any of the others Nate just mentioned and any we've covered in our seven seasons on our website, sportslit.ca. Click the link uh, in each book section and, and, yeah, buy these books and support these authors. So, without further ado, 1996 100 meter Olympic champion and world champion, Donovan Bailey. And we're back on Sports Lit Season 7, Episode 4. And we've got a very special guest today the fastest man in the world, 1996 Olympic champion at 100 meters. Mr. Donovan Bailey. Donovan, welcome to the show. Welcome to Sports Lit. 
Thanks for having me, Neil. Man, this is uh, this is great for having me on today. And you know, it's 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 already been a long day, but I'm ready <laughs> for whatever you got for me. Right. Thank you. Well, this uh, podcast obviously focuses on sports books. We read every book uh, cover to cover, uh, page to page, and so we want to have the most informed conversation with you. And the thing that struck me right off the top was. Um, Basically, I'll give you a bit of background. Caribbean culture has permeated Canada in a major way, and especially recently with pop culture. And I noticed in your narrative, it seemed very intentional and not passive in the way you wanted to define your upbringing to make sure it didn't fit convenient narratives that the average person may have about island culture and Jamaican culture. Were you uh, very conscious of that and how this may be read and, and conceptions of of how someone growing up in Jamaica may have may have come come of age. Yeah, very much so. I, you know what? I think that I wanted to point out in the book, you know, kind of like um, maybe more of our similarities. You know what I mean? As opposed mm -hmm. to our differences, and also that I, I know that uh, you know sometimes when when you're from, maybe from a first world country and you're thinking about island life, you're thinking about oh my god, you know what do these people do? You know what you know, what happens? And, and certainly for me, you know, church, school and sports was what we did. I grew up on a farm, you know, so that's like sometimes you, you know, you have you, you, you talk to like a typical Canadian person go, you grew up on a farm in Jamaica. I'm like, yes, a farm where there's cows and goats and cats and dogs and we grow carrots and potatoes, uh, you know, and, and there's, you know what I mean? You know, so so, yes, the, the book was very intentional to kind of point out that there's so much that we all have in common uh, because I wanted to resonate with people from everywhere. I mean, my friends are a cross section of everybody. I mean, my, if you like the, the closest people that are, that are, that, that, that the, 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 my closest friends are from everywhere. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, uh, whether it's Asia, Eastern Europe, the Caribbean, like whatever. And, you know, our thing in common is probably sports or music or food or, or whatever, like whatever it is, um, we we find we find that commonplace, uh, but ultimately what we do, and and obviously I address that in the book also. Yeah. We are all comfortable with each other and each other's culture, so you can get to you 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 discuss, and you might disagree, uh, but you respect it regardless. And you talk about in the book, you write about in the book how like if you had a family gathering, you would see the whole spectrum, right? Like a redhead and a, someone that look, might look like they're from India. Yeah. And, and so when you came to Canada, you know, it wasn't some sort of shock. You'd already seen the the wide array of, of I guess, ethnicities or-, or, yeah. or Well, yeah. Oh, well, I mean, I'm just saying to you, the motto in Jamaica is out of many one people, right? So so it, it, it is kind of funny when people go to Jamaica and they see some guy that looks like a tourist and, <laughs> and, and you, you find out that his parents or his or her parents might have moved there like in the 1800s and they're German, you know, or, 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 you know, like, they're like East Indian. It's, 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 you know, like you South Asian is, is huge in, in Jamaica. Chinese is huge in Jamaica. Of course, black people. I mean, so, I, you know, at the end of the day, I, 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 yeah, I wanted, I think the book for me was to kind of show people that, you know, Jamaica is also a melting pot. My family is a melting pot. Canada is a melting pot. So so ultimately for me, I was never going to be really uncomfortable anywhere I'm going to be. Nate, go ahead. Yeah, Donovan, uh, we had a Howard Bryant on last year, and he talked about how maybe in the 80s and 90s, people didn't talk a lot about who was holding the lens in a media portrayal, so to speak. 
How much did writing this book just make you think how things have gone from where the media kind of built a narrative around an athlete of you know your generation to where an athlete, and I'm thinking of maybe a star Canadian like Alfonso Davies has way more avenues to tell their story. Well, um, yeah, well, well, I mean, great question. Uh, when I was uh, when I was competing at the height of my career, when I was uh, the fastest uh, man on the planet, <clears throat> um, you just had conventional media. That's all you had, you know. So ultimately, if a reporter did not like you, uh, if a reporter decides that 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 they're gonna create some narrative about you. Uh, you had absolutely nothing that like you have to go. You essentially would have to go to another media person and another media house uh, to try and attempt to change that. And ultimately, uh, it's still of that writer's opinion or that interviewer's opinion as to how they present you. You know, so um, writing the book, uh, you know, for me, it's again taking control of of my own uh, my own brand, my own narrative, my own truth. And yeah, like right now, uh, you know, post George Floyd and and, and everything, and, and also post uh, social media platforms, there is a lot of athletes now that can, you know, one, they can they can say whatever the hell they want, uh, and and they can they can point out uh, facts uh, about themselves, uh, and and certainly can deny things that people who are trying to push them in a box or uh, or place some sort of negative narrative on them. Uh, they can certainly separate themselves from that. So it's so, uh, you know, for my book, it's so important, you know, for me to actually point that out, uh, correct some things that might have been in the media, uh, but also show, because, I mean, I did, I do mention uh, people like P.K. Subban and, and Alfonso Davies in the book that, you know, these guys have an opportunity now to, um, you know, one, be themselves, uh, utilize the platform for good, uh, you know, and also speak their truths. Mm. And I and I just wonder too, looking back at it now, as you know, on, on the, the you know your peak performance years as a you know a got man Absolutely. now you know comfortably in middle age, what what would it kind of be your what would how would how would your letter to your younger self begin? Well, this my you know letter to my younger self. Um, you know, there's not a whole lot I would change. A letter to my younger self would probably have been, uh, you know, be a little bit more patient. But I realize that I'm telling someone who's incredibly impatient to be a little more patient and 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 even if i sent that letter i, I would probably tear it up you know to my, in my younger self would probably rip that letter up um but yeah you know what i, I think that um you know like I, I i think being being patient is one of those things i, I the things that i that 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 i preach uh back then are the same things i talk about now surround yourself with incredible people who are always going to support you uh, continue to learn, understand if you don't do the work, uh, you're not going to get your desired results. You know, so there's not a lot of things that I would probably put in a book that'd be different than my journey. So the book is called Undisputed. And I, I, at the end, right at the end, you kind of understand why it's called Undisputed. <laughs> um, so I want to ask you point blank, where do you see yourself in the pantheon of Canadian sports history? Where is Donovan Bailey? Well, my book's called Undisputed, Neil, uh, you know, and so there's no Canadian that's ever put on a Canadian uniform that has dominated a sport that is played in every country like I have. None. Um, you know, Percy Williams is an uh, Olympic champion from 1928. 
Um, you know, Harry Jerome, um, you know, uh, you know, also uh, did quite well. Um, you know, I, like I don't know anyone else who who has been, you know, an Olympic champion, a world champion and a world record holder at a sport that's played around the globe. So, I mean, where do I rank the Pantheon? Well, you know, I'm going to see on the top. So I'm on the top. <laughs> Undisputed. Undisputed. Um, absolutely. <clears throat> um, so. I'm just going to segue a little bit because this plays a big factor in the book. Um, you do a really good job of explaining the nuance of Ben Johnson's mm -hmm. legacy as it pertains to you. Right. How it's not cut and dry, but it's sort of black and white in a way too. So um, for those that haven't read the book, um, how does Ben Johnson kind of factor into the into your story? Because it does in, in, in so many ways in the book, the way you're like always looking at your water bottle or... You're at a at a club and you're not letting your drink out of your sight. And then you also explain it from his perspective a little too. How is his story nuanced and how does it pertain to you? You know what? Um, wow, another good question. Uh, one, for those of you who don't know the story, go buy the book. That's what <laughs> we need. We're here. We're here. <laughs> We're here trying to get as many books off the shelves as possible. I need to be. Uh, bestseller because that's what I'm an athlete. I believe in winning. That's what we do. Uh, but yeah, I wanted to see. So here's here's a problem, Neil. Especially in the black community, there are people, and, and these are like sometimes I've spoken to black journalists. They're like, "Man, you've always been hard on Ben," and I'm like, "No, no, no. I'm not at all hard on Ben. I, I, what I'm trying to point out to you is what you know. It's kind of like having a CEO of a company that 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 CEO took the company bankrupt. And then I'm the new hire. And then when I come in, I have to deal, I have to undo every single thing that that CEO did. Uh, there's absolutely no um, like emotional connection or physical connection to Ben at all. I mean, you know, I probably, you know, I, I've never had a conversation with Ben. So I don't, I don't really, you know, even understand, you know, kind of where people would get the idea that I don't like him. But, I took over a sport where he was one of the biggest ambassadors on the planet. I started breaking world records. I am Canadian. I was born in Jamaica, you know? So at the end of the day, I wanted to kind of separate that and understand like, you know, my support system and where I come from and all of those things. But more importantly, when I started competing, how it is that I viewed the officials, a lot of those who were, you know, instrumental in you know guiding ben in what he did and 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 probably knew what he was doing and and they spent a whole lot of time you know benefiting from from his performances uh but when he was caught with his hand in the cookie jar they he all of a sudden became some jamaican canadian guy and so for that uh you know my immense paranoia uh you know you know obviously rear its ugly head because i'm just like I am never going to get into a place that I'm going to allow myself to be, you know, to trust anyone uh, because I have no idea who these people are. I have no idea. You know, like even if someone you sort of know, I, I, I have no idea who they might be. And ultimately, as we know, if you get, if you, if you test positives somewhere, whatever excuse you come up with, there's no excuse because you're supposed to know exactly what like you're supposed to manage your own self. So you have to know what food goes in your body, what you're drinking. You have to know, uh, you know, what, you know, what's in your water bottle, what's in your coffee. 
You have to know if, if whatever vitamins you take and where it came from and, 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 and how that is, you know, so, so you've never ever heard about someone testing positive in any sport whatsoever. And, and then, and them not come up with some sort of what, what is perceived and, and some of it rightfully. So there are people that are, have taken drugs intentionally. And certainly there are people that have, uh, that have ingested, um, uh, PDs by mistake, right? So I wanted to make it clear in the book about what happened with Ben, my thoughts on it, my opinion on that, and also like the I, you know you don't have to understand how much cortisol was built up in my body because of my paranoia to compete, you know, post Ben Johnson for Canada doing track and field, and 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 the fact is that how I had to manage myself because you can you can never imagine. You could never come up with an excuse. Like I couldn't, I couldn't be late for a drug test. You know what I mean? You know. Mm -hmm. So, so mm -hmm. I am. Um, yeah. So it was, it was imperative for me to, uh, for me to tell that story. And I, I mean, what you said right at the beginning of that answer, we, I mean, I, we certainly felt. And I'm sure I speak for Nate when we were watching you come up. Like this is eight years after Ben Johnson, and we're we're pulling for him. But we, I, you but, could feel it. We could see it. We could feel it through the TV screen. So. Right. right. Um, Go ahead, Nate. Yeah, I, I, that made me wonder about, the, you know, uh, a phrase a friend of mine uses, it's the cost keeps costing. But that paranoia you speak of, like how much did that stay with you over the years or or was it the case where you went sat down to work on the book and said, oh my goodness, like this is where my head was at, you know, 25, 30 years ago. You know what? Listen, the paranoia is probably still here. I mean, I, I'm, I'm always conscious of where I am, always conscious of what I'm doing, almost con always conscious of people around me. You just never know. Right. You know, uh, you know, but I'm just saying I broke the world record and became the fastest human being on the planet with all of like with the headaches uh, dealing with, um, you know, obviously narrative in the media, dealing with not having support uh, from the governing bodies who a lot of them were supporting Ben, um, you know, and and still breaking world records and still, you know, you know, bringing my my teammates uh, gold medals uh, in the relay. Like, imagine if I didn't have any of those things and I had support, right? And I, like, because that's really what, how I think about it. Imagine if there was just complete and total freedom, like, like the kids have today, which is, I hope, which is kind of really my legacy. That, like, you know, the kids today, our track team today, our sports team today can just go and play sports with reckless abandonment. Now, imagine if I had that opportunity how much better I would be, right? And those are the questions that I ask myself because as I said in the book, I am the why kid. So imagine if I just had just support and people were proactive in helping and, and assisting and, 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 and cheerleading. You know, the fact is I would have gone and, you know, whatever world records, I mean, I had, I had, I ended up, I had three world records over my career. I, I, I have one now, but imagine how much better I would be if none of those things existed. Yeah, when I'm the king around here, I think is uh, is what you said. And, and yes. yeah, well, done. we don't wanna give everything away, but uh, you're very forthright in in dealing with the, I think it's, it's, it's the Athletics Canada and maybe the Canadian Olympic Committee. Yeah, both, both, yeah, yeah the governing bodies. Yes, yeah. Nate, uh, I think you, you wanna ask about a special coach, is that correct? Yeah, I, I was watching a couple of uh, podcasts uh, that Dan Paff was on. How would you describe his teaching, I guess, to anyone who wanted to teach someone else something? I think Dan is the smartest 
uh, one of the smartest human beings I, I know. Uh, Dan is someone who um, has honed his craft over the years. And one of the things that I've learned from Dan is that you're constantly a student. You're always learning. You're always finding ways. Uh, you're always seeking new things. You're always evolving. And Dan is one of the few people I know that even when I was competing, I'd ask him a question. And if he didn't have the answer that day, he would say to me, I'll get back to you. And in his network of people right around the planet, he would, he would actually go home and read or call someone and he'd have an answer the next day for me. And for me, he was constant. So, so for me, uh, the cerebral connection that he and I had um, that again, allowed me one to trust them implicitly. Right. And, 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 and that allowed me that they, anytime he wrote any workout for me and my body type and my running style, um, it allowed me to just, just be, you know, just be like, thank you. Thank you. I guess this is what I'm doing. I mean, there's lots of times I'd have pushback, but he goes, Hey, are you, are you trying to be the best? Are you trying to be the greatest? I'm like, yeah. Like, okay, well, that's the end of that argument. So Dan is one of the most smart, Dan is one of the smartest people that I know because, uh, you know, he, he lives by example. Uh, he, he absolutely lives and teaches by example. And every single day, even to this day, Dan will tell you that he's talking to someone about doing something and is constantly evolving. I, to this day, I think that Dan is still the best coach around, even today. It's interesting. You know, I've I've learned about Dan through that. I think there was a documentary about you that came out on TSN maybe five years ago. And so you learned a little bit about him then. But what was fascinating in this book is that this guy, this guy wasn't getting paid. You had to you sent him a, I think it was a tracksuit or something with a bunch of cash when you when you when you hit it, I think world championships when you won. And yeah, and later he he's so like pure to the uh, to the to the sport that he's training like Pretty much anyone that wants to be good. Yes, he would have trained both you guys. <laughs> <laughs> no, but he would have. No, understand this. Okay, why I love Dan was this. I mean, and again, we we it's it, there's pockets of it in the book. Um, Dan took me on um, essentially as a project. It's kind of like what Wayne Allison did at Sheridan College, but Daniel was extremely talented. So so, but he took me on. And not one day did he ask me for a dollar. Not one day. And so this guy's a coach who never owned a house. Never. And I was just like, my God, you never own. Like, I thought it was funny. The first conversation I had with him about not owning a house. I'm like, you don't own a house? I bought my first house when I was 19. To me, that was a normal thing. Uh, and he said, no, never own a house. So it was after. So it wasn't after the World Championships, Neil. It was actually after my first season with him. Oh, okay. Uh, you know, I, and I said to him, I asked him what size he wore a tracksuit. And then I stuffed that with cash for him to go buy a house. Yeah, for real. So, so I'm just saying to you that imagine a coach who dedicates his life uh, to coaching people because he loves it, right? I mean, I guess it's the same way when I left Dan uh, at the end of 1997. I'm like, Dan, we're, we own the sport around the world now. The, and, but then you have all of these slackers that have zero chance of doing anything. Like there were, there were, there were men that were training with us that Shelly Ann Fraser and Elaine Thompson would have had for dinner, right? I mean, but he, he'd give them. He's like, oh, you know, you, they're here. They want to improve. And Donovan, I gave you a chance. And I'm like, God, okay, you know what? 
where am I going to go? Right? And I'm like, I'm like, where am I going to go? Because I'm going to ask you. You're mm-hmm. the guy that knows everything about coaching. Where am I going to go? Right? So, yeah, Dan is awesome human being. And then he's indirectly, when you leave, he's then indirectly coaching you through, I think you're a your massage therapist. Yeah, your chiropractor. Right. Yeah, chiropractor. <laughs> like, uh, so you guys had that connection, which is which is wild. Um, so, yeah, very interesting. And that was the part of the book. And we're almost at the lightning round, Donovan. Don't worry. Right. Um, uh, that was what was interesting to me was because I think most Canadians know you for that period of time from the world, the first world championship win to the double gold and the the don't you love Saturday nights in Georgia to Michael Johnson at Skydome. And then they're right. like, okay, what was the rest and how did that? So the, the Dan Pfaff separation is right. really a, a, a big turning point in the book. Huge. I, well, well, Dan's Dan, Dan, Dan and I separated. Um, I went away and I got injured. I mean, and so mm-hmm. the other thing that I point out also in the book that anytime I'm having like major crisis, it seems like my body attacks itself. So right. I think that funny enough, I blew my Achilles in 1998 because I was I was I was yeah. finished in Atlanta. I was gonna move back to be with Dan anyways because it's kind of like I'm home. I miss home. He misses kid. You know that sort of thing. I blew my Achilles. So my essentially my career was over, right? And 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 funny enough, uh, you know, a few years ago, uh, my father passed away. I blew my Achilles. So it's almost like yes. you know something that I cannot control. So it's 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 it is very weird. We'll go one question each, Nate, Nate, and then we'll go right into the lightning round. So, Nate, right. you want me to go first? Or yeah, you? I'll, I'll, I, I, will, I will ask uh, quickly. I just wondered, uh, re- reading this book, uh, and we're coming up on an Olympic year where, you know, all these people become once every four years experts in a sport. <laughs> points at self. <laughs> but how much would people learn about, you know, just the technical aspects of sprinting because to me i was like when you were talking about everything i was just like wow this is almost like an olympic hundred almost is like something that's almost like a space shuttle launch like everything has to be right like how how uh, how accurate is that to say nathan you know what funny thank you for that i'm gonna use that because that's <laughs> what ahead, it is it's yours. no no but but that's that's exactly what it is i mean ultimately if you go into the olympic finals and you are the space shuttle because nothing can go wrong Absolutely nothing can go wrong. I mean, maybe in the 100 meters, you might have a nanosecond, uh, you know, to make a mistake, correct it, and move on. But but that's exactly what it is. You have to go into the games, and the person who makes the least amount of mistakes is the winner. So, But it is like that. It, uh, it 100% never, it's never been mentioned, which, I, which, which I'm telling you I'm going to steal it now. But it <laughs> is like a space shuttle launch. Nothing, like you have to do... You have to prepare for every single thing and hope that nothing goes wrong. I hope you make as as tiny a mistake as possible. It's funny, uh, before I get to my last question, um, someone was asking me the other day, we were watching the Pan Amps, and they're like, how did Maggie McNeil slow down in the heat? Like, how do they know how to just, like, just slow down when they don't need it? Like, it's crazy, right? You right. you know your body so well that you can, like, well, who is it that you pulled up on in the, when you went over to your first international meet and you told them, I'm gonna slow up, but I I'm gonna let you know I can beat you. I don't know who that was, but well, one uh, it was Bruni at one point. Um, right, it was Bruni at the Francophone Games. Yeah, um, but then it was uh, it was Frankie also Frankie yeah, just right before right. just before the Olympic Games. Right. Uh, yeah, but I'm I'm saying to you that that the 100 meters, uh, you know, there, there's three parts to it. Mm-hmm. So uh, you know, understanding 
what you do in the blocks, understanding what it is that you have to do for the first 30 meters, understanding what you have to do for the middle 40 meters, and understanding for what you cannot do for the last 30 meters. So you're doing all of those things, uh, that, like understanding this. You're maximizing uh, power, but you are the most relaxed at the exact same time. That is the 100 meters. Love it. <laughs> okay, Love it. Love it. Uh, lastly, before the lightning round, your business acumen comes up a lot in the book. You mentioned where you bought your first house at 19. Um, I talked about intent earlier when you mentioned the intent or I talked about the intent of how I thought you were trying to explain your origin story. Mm -hmm. uh, there seems to, this book seems to be written for an audience beyond Canada, because sometimes you're explaining like in Canada, this is, uh, this is the way it goes in a certain example. So were you, did you, when you were writing this book, did you make sure it was known that you wanted this book to be sold overseas and there'd be an audience for it overseas or in America or somewhere else? Well, Track and field, there's 220 countries or 215 countries in the world. Track and field or athletics is in every single one of them. So, yes, we're, we're selling books in every single country. And, <laughs> and the other thing, Neil, that I thought is, it's pretty important is that, um, you know, our sport, number one, is global. But I think sometimes, you know, there's such negative narratives. Uh, you, know, as a, you know, as a proud mama's boy, a proud black man, you don't speak enough about your mom. You don't speak enough about your dad. There's not enough of that um, that's out there. And so the book itself, I, I just really want to point out that how, like how as you know, I'm, I'm a parent, right? Mm -hmm. And and both of you guys had parents or have parents. Yeah. You yeah. know, so I'm just trying to point out how similar we are. And right. the fact is that all you want when you have a kid is that kid to grow up. Uh, you know, whether or not you know. If that kid has a passion, you want to help fuel that passion. If that kid wants to be a doctor or be educated, help fuel that. I, and you know, my, you know, my journey, you know, is track and field. So that has opened doors in 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 the 195 countries I've been to in the world. That's opened a door in every single one of those countries where I've gone and met with like every heads of every every heads of state. Um, I've, I've gone into many boardrooms. I'm very comfortable with myself. And so the book is uh, ho hopefully a motivating, motivating factor for kids around the globe uh, that have a dream. I don't care what the dream is, right? Just whatever dream you've got, you know, uh, understand that no one should be capable of putting you in a box and, and no, one, no one should be no one should be trying to limit you uh, in the ideas and the things that you can do. Well, to our global audience, you can buy the book on our website. So if you're listening to this anywhere outside of Canada, click the link. Um, okay, so lightning round. Um, you can't call yourself a world champ unless you're competing in an international event, says Noah Lyles. Took a lot of heat. Do you agree or not? Of course. I, I, I agree. Well, I said it. <clears throat> I said it then. I mean, you know, uh, you know, listen, I'm a huge basketball fan. I'm, I'm actually a basketball head. And I prefer, to, like, that's probably the only sport I prefer to play today. And and, and Noah was right. Uh, you know, the NBA is made up of the greatest basketball players on the planet. But uh, it is, it is, um, it is uh, American cities playing each other plus the Raptors. Uh, yeah, so <laughs> at, at, at when you play the, when you win the, the NBA championships, 
the 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 anthem that's played is uh, is is uh, is either Canada or the U.S. Right. So Noah was a hundred percent correct. You know what? You're you're absolutely right. By the way, and I, I agree with you too. Uh, I think only in America would you call yourself the world champion and not be competing in an international event. Okay, go ahead, Nate. Okay, Andre DeGrasse has run a 98900. Will he go sub 984 and break your national record? Listen, I hope so. I hope so. I mean, like the the my 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 Canadian record now was the world record when I ran. You know, so so ultimately and and I've said to him, I've said to Aaron, I've said to all the kids, I'm like, dude, it's 984. Uh, it, it's I know it's a phenomenal time still, uh, but it, you know technically, if you look at what a lot of these kids are running with the shoe technology and and, and uh, nutrition and the technology of the track, uh, I mean, and and you know all the things that are happening, all the like the training technical things, uh, yeah, you should have broken it a long time ago. So I am a huge supporter. Uh, you know, of the kids breaking the Canadian record. But ultimately, you know, me being undisputed, uh, for any of these kids in Canada to be world champion, Olympic champion, and world record holder, that's going to be a tough hill because, you know, 20-some-odd years ago, I was the fastest man in history of the world. The fastest time in the history of the world right now is a very talented man by the name of Usain Bolt, and for any of these kids that even equal what I've done, uh, they have to run 957 uh, and then come back and break the relay. Man, it's like it's a tough haul. But, yeah, I'm certainly cheering on these young cats uh, for them to come out and at least, you know, be, be the fastest guy in Canadian history. But I want them to strive higher like I did uh, when I was the fastest man. I was the number one sprinter on the planet uh, and, and, and the fastest man in history. If Michael Johnson was chicken, what does that make Lamont Marcel Jacobs? Oh, my God. Oh, you know what? I like Marcel Jacobs. I do. <laughs> I think that – no, I do. I think that Marcel is one of the, the most talented uh, sprinters out there. I mean, you, like, the guy ran the time. He ran 980, and, like, the, his time didn't lie. Uh, I think he's a big, strong kid. He's, he's training with Andre this year, hopefully – uh, he can get, I guess I can say balls. He can get some balls and not worry about, and not worry about like the people that are out there and, 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 and his competitors or the media or, 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 or the criticism that he's receiving on online. Uh, he can kind of eliminate that. And I, I, you know, I, I, I think that he, he, he should be a factor in, in Paris, man. Marcel, I'm cheering you on my boy. One more each, Nate. Go. Yeah. What what nation has the uh, greatest potential in track and field that that the you know wider public doesn't know about yet? Oh God, uh, there's a few actually. Great question, Nate. Um, Japan. It's always been. I mean, these guys. You see them. You see them in um, every year uh, in the relay. Uh, phenomenal, uh, phenomenal talent. There's always great talent coming out of Australia. Um, the African countries that are that are that were always known for distance running, they have discovered that they got some speed. Botswana, uh, let's see, Lake Tobogo, it's probably the probably you know will be the greatest factor in the one and the two hundred meter over the next couple of years. Um, Ferdinand Amanyala uh, from Kenya, again, Kenyans are known for distance running. So I think that the African region, so we can pull up many countries 
uh, out of Africa, um, it, 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 countries that are tra traditionally known for for uh, for distance running. Uh, they they have there's huge potential. Um, you know, Canadians on a whole. I mean, I think that I still think that we can tap into um, like probably more resources and get a lot of our kids in Canada to either go way down south and prepare down south and kind of get the attitude and the confidence to compete on the world stage. But you know what? So that's my quick, uh, what's that, four countries? Yeah. <laughs> okay, last yeah. question. Four to eight, I guess. Yeah, last four to eight. Yeah, whatever. I, yeah, my math is not good. It's early. Last question. Uh, and, and again, this has been great. Um, because you mentioned it's a, it, you know, you want people to know about your family, global, sell this book and, and, and understand you and where you came from, how it started and what happened and, and how <clears throat> you are where you are now. Uh, I want to ask you this question. What John Holt song reminds you most of your father? God, don't say that, man. He, oh, man. You have to, you'd have to give me a couple. Oh, well, I mean, the, but my, you, but you're, my, but now you're tripping me out because now now I feel embarrassed. I mean, that's my dad's favorite. There's musician. too many to name. It's Him, a Dennis I, Brown, you Dennis know, Brown. Yep. Gregory you, Isaacs. Jesus, you're, you're killing me, Neil. You took you you took your dad to a John Holt concert, right? Like that was in the book. Like funny, the but funny enough, and I sang along to a whole bunch of them, and <laughs> you are now stomping me in the middle of the morning. How dare you do that, bro? I'm my bad, my bad. Listen, <laughs> we had the undisputed camp on today. It's I know I speak for myself and Nate. We had a thrill back in the nineties watching you. There was nobody like you. Yeah, this was amazing. Yeah, thanks again for making the time. I know a lot of people want your time, and it's uh, good of you to give us. A half an hour today well listen thank you uh thank you for having me and you know what um you know uh in your in your entire audience uh, please go out and buy the book and 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 to all the sports fans and my incredible support system around the globe um thank god i mean i am blessed and humbled to have shared some incredible sporting moments with you all uh i hope this book brings back awesome pleasant memories i hope you get to know me a little bit more and um Share it, uh, buy it, uh, give it to your friends for Christmas. You know, have a good day, fellas. Thank you so much.